Hey all, this is Robert Roach, host of the Type 1 Planet podcast. And today I had a conversation with Dr. Philip Kohlinger. He's the president of the board for the DSI Foundation, which is an organization that's dedicated to the development of a more verifiable, more open and fairer information ecosystem for science and scientists. So what does this have to do with becoming a Type 1 Planet? Well, science and scientific research is one of the most important drivers for civilizational progress. Like every discovery in biology, physics, chemistry, they're all pieces of knowledge in the lattice work that is our understanding of the reality that we live in. And the more we understand, the more we're able to manipulate and refine our own existence into one that has less suffering and greater potential for a sustainable future. What few people know is that the industry for scientific research and publication is really broken. It's driven by perverse incentive structures that push scientists to fabricate data, to select projects on the basis of cultural popularity than on scientific relevance. Scientists are scrambling to release as many papers as possible to secure their funding, which is creating a bubble in the scientific industry. And it's ready to pop. Scientists are disconnected and incentivized to hide information from each other. And it's in an industry where collaboration should be paramount. Now, my guest today, he's trying to fix the scientific information ecosystem, and he's using innovative blockchain technology to link every piece of scientific data, every discovery, every scientific document. It's on a living network. For example, if a scientific paper references a piece of data from another lab, that references a traceable link to the other document. And changes in the data will mean that all documents that reference the data will also change. So this system is designed to break down data silos in the scientific industry using a method that Dr. Kohlinger calls meta-science, in which the scientific method is applied to find ways to improve the scientific industry. Well, I think it's a fantastic conversation. I'm only just scratching the surface here. But what DSI is doing is really has the potential to change all of science as we know it. Uh, so please enjoy. Please listen. Share. Uh, visit us at type1planet.net. Check out our social media and follow us. Uh, we're starting to make a lot of connections now and starting to reach a lot of interesting people. And if you are aware of someone that should be on this show um, and you're aware of our mission, what we're trying to do, please reach out to us. Let us know. We look forward to hearing from you. All right. Hello and welcome to the Type 1 Planet podcast. I'm Robert Roach and I'm joined by our guest, Dr. Philip Kohlinger. He's president of the board for the DSI Foundation. And he's also the host of the Future of Science podcast, which we'll go into in a little bit. And the DSI Foundation is an organization that's dedicated to the development of a more verifiable, more open and fair ecosystem for science and scientists. So Dr. Kohlinger, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Robert. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So the mission of Type 1 Planet, we're hoping to reimagine civilization so we can enter into a long-term sustainable state that's in equilibrium with ourselves and our planetary environment. And a major component of this model is to find ways to democratize scientific knowledge and to preserve its integrity and its verifiability while maintaining a viable industry yeah. for scientists to work in. So yeah, for the absolutely. layman, let's begin with the problem that's being addressed by DSI. What is the current state of the information ecosystem that's being used by scientists. Right. So there, there's a lot of different parts to that. So I, I think we, uh, we probably uh, need to, uh, to take a few minutes to actually describe the full scope of the problem. So 
let's start with the first one, which is how scientific information is currently stored and shared with the public. So the system that we're currently using uh, is basically a system that derived out of the publication industry, the printing industry. Uh, so it's basically a model that is essentially 200 years old um, and which has only in the last 20 years or so made a gradual transition into the digital age. So what we have is basically a, a vast array of, uh, of journals, of academic journals, that are doing peer review on the research uh, that scientists are doing. And then that, you know, the, the referees and the editors, they make a decision about whether a particular article is suitable and good enough for a journal. Uh, and if it is, then it is being published by that journal. And what happens then is basically one of two different things. So either it ends behind, uh, it basically ends up behind a paywall uh, so that would mean that you know the the article is being digitally released but only to those few individuals or organizations in the world that actually have a subscription to that journal that particular business model basically excludes the vast majority of mankind from access to the actual published articles the other model is that the article gets published under an open access license, uh, which means that in principle, anybody on the internet can actually see it and read it. But the authors then have to pay an author publication charge, which depending on the journal is anything between a thousand or almost $12,000 per paper. Now you can obviously see that there is big problems with both of these business models. So either uh, we're, we're basically excluding the vast majority of mankind from actually accessing uh, that knowledge, or we have scientists who actually have to pay these enormous publication charges. And both of these business models actually create sort of like perverse incentives. So the one with the, uh, with the author publication charges, it actually creates an incentive for the journals uh, to publish as much as they possibly can, right? And that gave rise to a bunch of predatory journals and, and journals that, uh, that masquerade as, as scientific journals, but are actually not doing any sort of quality control whatsoever. Uh, and they're literally trying to just prey on, uh, on scientists. So just because something got published in a journal doesn't mean that it's actually true. Just because it got published maybe even in a very prestigious journal, and this is where it actually gets uh, quite worrying, it also doesn't mean that it's true. Uh, so let me dive into that a little bit more. So the way that uh, very prestigious journals typically select articles for publication is based on a variety of criteria, but probably the most important one is how novel and how surprising the results are that the authors are presenting. And that means if you, if you made a really breakthrough discovery, uh, then you have a good chance to get into one of these glam journals and they ultimately carry huge weight for the scientists to uh, uh, basically advance their career, to get promoted, to get a new job, whatever. So for the scientists, there's a huge incentive to actually try to make it into these so-called high impact journals. Now, if, if the incentive really is that you should constantly try to do and to find things that are very novel and surprising, then, you know, uh, it does create perverse incentives for the scientists to actually 
uh, cut corners or to massage their data or to literally just make up results um, just because they want to get into these high-impact dramas. So there have been a lot of cases in the last couple of years and even decades where we had uh, cases of scientific fraud, uh, where we had cases of publications that, uh, that were very, very influential, uh, that received thousands of, uh, of citations and that have literally triggered huge research programs that were sponsored, uh, that collected like tens, if not hundreds of millions of different dollars, uh, and that ultimately turned out to be false or based on fabricated results or based on results that did not replicate. And that is another sort of broken incentive that we currently have in the scientific system, which is that if you do find something that is really novel and surprising, you would actually want other scientists to independently check your results to, uh, you know, so let's say you've run an experiment that yielded really surprising results, then ideally you would want to have an incentive mechanism for other scientists to basically take your, um, your experimental methods to run the experiment independently in their own laboratory and to try to see if they can actually replicate the results. Now, that would be a very sensible thing to do, because even if you can just replicate an original finding uh, in its original form just once, you've actually dramatically increased the chance that that finding was not just an outlier and not just a per, uh, per chance finding, right? But unfortunately, that incentive does not exist because, as I said, the journals primarily select for novelty uh, and, uh, and for surprise, which basically means that... Uh, if you want to go out and just replicate exactly what somebody else has been doing, there is a very small chance that you will end up being able to publish that in a high-impact journal. So that, that basically means that uh, a very important part of the scientific mechanism um, to self-correct is currently missing, right? So that's one part of the problem. So the incentives and the, the publication system. There is a lot of other problems that we have. Uh, one of them has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of data, obviously, is being created in science. And, and ultimately, what, what you care about in a lot of uh, data-intensive or compute-intensive fields of research is not even that much the article per se, but you actually care about the underlying scientific artifacts. So you care about uh, the data and the code and everything that has to do with it. Right. Now, the thing is that the traditional publishers, they do not have a business model either for for storing uh, these types of art, scientific artifacts or for actually evaluating them. So there is no mechanism for for peer review or for even just making these uh, scientific uh, artifacts available uh, to the broader scientific community. So that's also creates a lot of problems. It means that a lot of the actual research cannot be independently verified. It cannot be checked. If you cannot go into the original resources, you cannot actually evaluate the original data, you cannot actually check the code, then you're very limited actually in, uh, in how far you can really evaluate the quality of, uh, of the research that has been done. But on top of that, on top of that, there is also just a gigantic waste of resources because it is just so difficult now for for other scientists to actually get access to uh, to these data, right? So there is a lot of 
money, a lot of time that gets wasted simply because these really important parts of the scientific enterprise do not get stored and do not get shared uh, in a way that enables others to find them, to access them, uh, and to reuse them. Hmm. Now, there's also the open access um, a version that you mentioned, yep. in which the authors, you know, anyone can access the information, but the authors are being charged. Are there also perverse or or kind of difficult incentive structures that are coming out of that that system as well? Yeah. So um, the author publication charges or these open access models, um, they uh, they have a number of uh, like really perverse incentives that come out of it. One of them is that they really create for the publisher. Um, basically an incentive to accept as many papers as they can, right? So because every time they'd say no to a paper, um, they actually say no to revenue. They say no to a contribution to their bottom line, uh, which is obviously a highly problematic uh, incentive, especially if we keep thinking of journals as the mechanism that is uh, doing quality control and curation for the scientific record. But it also creates a really weird um, side effect because it means that ultimately only institutions or scientists that are working at institutions that are very well funded can actually afford to pay these really, really expensive um, uh, publication charges. And the authors that ultimately get funded, uh, get published, they are the ones that are ultimately paying for all the work that the journal is doing. Right? So they're, they're actually indirectly sponsoring with their author publication charges all the other submissions and, and all the work that went into evaluating them uh, that did not get published. So all of that is just, it's, it's a really tricky system. Um, and it's quite interesting to, uh, to think about the implications of the White House memo. Uh, so there, there was the, the White House memo in, uh, in September where they basically mandated that uh, that all federally funded research needs to be publicly available, basically under an open access uh, license. Uh, I think from 2025 or 2026 onwards, immediately from the moment where it's get published. So that ultimately means that scientists who receive funding from the federal government in the US, uh, they cannot simply publish their results in the traditional subscription-based journals anymore. So that raises the question, so where else are they going to publish? Well, either they could publish under this open uh, publication charge, uh, author publication charge, which ultimately means that they would need to create sort of like a budget in their in their grant proposal that reserves money to pay for these outrageous author publication charges. And that means that they actually have less money available to do the uh, the real research, and they may actually go to uh, to journals uh, that have perverse incentives of actually publishing stuff that is not really solid. Hmm. So that is probably not an optimal solution, but it is currently the state of the system. And I could see scientists saying, "Well, then I don't want to do federally funded research because I'd prefer to." try to publish in Nature Magazine where my research will get a ton of uh, references and that kind of stuff, right. uh, you know? So, all yeah. right. So we're seeing over-publishing, fudging results. We're selecting just for novelty and surprise, you know, quality control issues, expense issues, all from this current system. Yeah. Um, so let's, 
bring it uh, into the work that you're doing and the work that DSI is doing. Uh, first, a clarative or a clarification: What is the difference between DSI Labs and the DSI Foundation? You know, what are the do they have separate strategic yeah. missions? Uh, yeah, how does absolutely. this work? Yeah, yeah. So DSI Labs is basically as a software company. So uh, DSI Labs is building infrastructure and technology for scientific publishing and in the future also for novel mechanisms to actually finance and, and fund the research. And the DSI Foundation is a nonprofit that uh, is purely working on improving the scientific ecosystem at large. And we're doing that by setting up basically sponsoring programs uh, that will help scientists to, uh, to do best practice research, to investigate the, the current state of the scientific uh, ecosystem by investing into uh, meta science research projects, uh, and by also trying out new approaches of bringing together technology and, and scientists in ways that we can experiment and try to to come up with alternatives uh, to how the system actually could work. And ideally, we're going to do that in ways that are actual natural experiments so that whenever we start experimenting with the system, that we actually don't do that uh, in, a, in a way that cannot be evaluated, but rather we want to do it in a way that uh, it is an experiment that can be evaluated and where we can actually see causes and effects. And, uh, and then basically draw our conclusions and just feed that back into this uh, engine that is supposed to uh, increase the, the quality and the functionality of the scientific ecosystem at okay. large. So DSI Labs is one of the major initiatives underneath the foundation, would you say? Uh, they're, they're two independent entities, but uh, they uh, they have different missions. So uh, DSI Labs is a technology company. Uh, the DSI Foundation uh, is much, much broader in its, yeah. in its focus. But of course, there is a collaboration between the two. So, you know, um, the, uh, the foundation uh, can, for example, in the future, play a role in governing the ecosystem that, that DSI Labs is building. It can also contribute to uh, to insights about whether the new things that we're building, whether they're actually working the way that they should be working. So we can have an independent layer of, uh, of evaluation that, that keeps an eye on that system. Okay. Okay. So let's let's dive into a little bit on DSI Labs just to get a so uh, uh, an overview. So they yeah. they say that they promote a radically open architecture for yeah. verifiable research. So yeah. what does this architecture actually look like? How does it function? How do users interface with it? Yeah. So the bottom layer of, uh, of what DSI Labs is building uh, is essentially something like a platinum open access publication platform. Or maybe another way of phrasing it is basically a, a preprint server on steroids. So the infrastructure that, uh, that is being built there uh, so currently, it's it's an alpha testing. We'll go into beta testing later this month. Um, so the the first building block of that infrastructure is called DSI nodes, and they enable researchers to basically create uh, read research objects. So fully interoperable uh, digital research objects. So what's a research object? A research object could be any sort of scientific artifact. It could be a manuscript, it could be a data set, it could be a piece of code, it could be a video that is being recorded in the lab uh, describing the experimental procedures. 
It could be a presentation that, uh, that people have given. And all of these different components of a particular research project, they would be stored under the umbrella of a research object. That research object will then be stored on the decentralized web, meaning that it will be open uh, to anybody to, to read and to access uh, that information uh, by definition. It's also built in a way that the data is being stored in a lot of different places around the world uh, with a system that is called content addressing. So it's a, it's, it's, a real, uh, it's a real upgrade, basically, to the internet protocol that we're currently using, where you know, uh, the files and, and all the content on the current internet uh, are basically the, the permanent identifiers. They're actually not permanent, but they're just links to a particular location of a server. So they tell you where a file is. Mm. They don't tell you what that file is. And under content addressing, that is being switched around. So in, in content addressing, basically each digital object has a unique identifier that is being derived literally from its content uh, through a cryptographic half, uh, hash function. So you can then verify that the address of that object actually matches the content that you're receiving. And then that content, as I said, is being stored uh, by various data storage providers uh, at various places around the world. So at minimum, it would be uh, five different copies that are stored in, I think it's five different countries, uh, three and three different continents. So it's, it's really, it's vastly distributed uh, and it basically is the backbone of what we think that scientific uh, record of the future should look like. Mm -hmm. It should not be possible to actually create paywalls around it. It should be possible for, for all scientists to actually create and to share their research results and uh, the, um, uh, the work that they're doing with the public for free. And then there can be a bunch of like interesting tools built on top of that infrastructure, such as tools to, to curate uh, knowledge, to basically summarize it or to, to surface it, very similar to, to what journals are nowadays doing. Um, there's going to be tools to actually evaluate that research. So there's going to be a layer that, uh, that will actually allow peer review and verification services uh, provided by scientific societies. And uh, there is a bunch of ideas that we have for how we can actually uh, incentivize these uh, scientists uh, who are doing the work to actually do that work rigorously and to do it quickly. And of course, then there need to be revenue uh, generating mechanisms that actually allow us to create these uh, mechanisms. And uh, so, yeah, so there is uh, there is all that stuff uh, that will come in the future. And then finally, uh, because that entire infrastructure is built on the decentralized web, uh, there is also a possibility to uh, basically build a very efficient and very targeted uh, funding infrastructure on top of all of that. So let's go to the nodes real quick. I want to break it down from a total layman perspective that let's say I am uh, pursuing my PhD. I am create, I'm creating data sets around a thesis that I have. Yep. Um, I, each one of these data, let's say I create a data set, I can add it as a node. Um, yep. I can, let's say I have 20 of these nodes. I, I'll say, great, uh, go to my PhD thesis defense. I get my PhD, great, I get it published. Um, and 
now I have all of my data sets available here on this um, this kind of node network, yep. and including my my final product and all of my you know my papers and maybe my presentations and that kind of stuff. And yep. so those nodes are available. If someone else were to continue my work in some other direction or wanted to reference one of my uh, one of my uh, data sets, they would actually reference that particular node. Yep. Exactly. And they would say, okay, in my document, I'm referring to this node address here. And then th would that apply as a an actual reference on my on my uh, research? Exactly. Okay. That's exactly how it would work. So, and th there is a number of like additional superpowers of this uh, of this new ecosystem that I that I haven't talked about yet. So one of them is that because we're we're building on content addressing and on actual persistent identifiers. There's also a very elegant way how this new infrastructure can then uh, support versioning control. So that is also something that the current scientific record doesn't have, right? So if you if you basically want to update your manuscripts, um, this is not possible the moment that this paper has actually been published. Um, so there is basically only two things that you can do at that point. So either uh, you write a new paper. Uh, which you know reports what what needed to be changed, uh, or you hand in uh, basically uh, a, a, yeah basically a, uh, an, an error message to the uh, to the publisher, and they uh, they will publish a corrigendum saying that the original article was false, and or you can basically withdraw your article, right? Uh, same thing when when you have data sets, right? So if you have data sets and you want to update them over time, what happens currently is that you just overwrite the original version. The, the old version either gets lost or it's very difficult to, uh, to actually make reference to it. So in this new system, none of that is going to be a problem anymore. You can actually make very accurate uh, references to specific versions of a research object or, um, uh, or a data set. And you can also actually connect these research objects with each other. So you can now actually use citations as function calls. So you can literally start pulling in data uh, just by, by referencing this particular part of a research object to pull it into your own one or to run a compute job on, uh, on a data set uh, that is actually living in a different research object. So there will also be this possibility to actually do compute jobs on the servers where the data is already stored instead of actually having to move the data around. So all of that is going to be possible. It's so interesting. And so if a data set were to be updated or changed, let's say a data set further down this chain of, of citations, for example, if that data set were to be updated or changed, it would change all of yeah. the subsequential documents or, or citations or, or later data sets. Is that kind of how it would work? Yeah. So, um, so how exactly the citations are going to be counted? Uh, this is something that uh, that will ultimately be in the hands of uh, the people that are running the, the databases that are basically aggregating these citation counts. So we have some ideas about how, how this should actually work in practice. So the, the way that I'm thinking about it is that if you have these various components of a research object, then whenever somebody makes a reference to any particular part of that research object, be it the code, be it the data, uh, if they pull it into their own research object or literally reference it in a, in a manuscript, all of that should basically aggregate uh, sort of to the root node of that, uh, of that research object, right? But ideally, uh, if, if the databases that are calculating all these citation counts, if, if, uh, if they would be you know, capable of doing that, 
you could actually break that down. You can say, well, within these research objects, how much of it has actually gone to the data? How much of the citations have, have gone to my code? How much have gone to my, uh, to my manuscript? And then there's also this really interesting idea that once a research object is out there, um, in principle, somebody else could come in and they, they could sort of, they could fork that research object, right? Very similar to how you're currently writing code in GitHub. So you, you could come in as a scientist and you could say, oh, this is actually quite interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that data set. Uh, I'm going to take that code, but I'm going to add something to it. And I'm going to write a new paper out of it. And uh, then, you know, you could either create a new version, sort of like a forked version, or you could say, well, actually, I've, I've done that work, uh, but I would actually like to, to merge my work with the work of the original authors. So you could send them a merge request and it would be up to the original authors to decide whether they actually accept that merge request or not. Cool. And that would create like really interesting, like new models, how scientists can actually work together, right? So you could then imagine that uh, there could be basically an, an ecosystem of, uh, of people uh, that are adding value to, uh, to the work that others have been doing. Uh, in a lot of different ways, for example, by by doing additional robustness checks or analysis, or uh, by literally repeating their their experiment uh, in a in a different setting, or maybe just also uh, adding to uh, you know to the how the original research object is being presented. For example, by by writing a nice summary that is accessible to a broader public, or by creating a piece of art that is uh, illustrating the results of. Mm. Um, uh, of that research object, right? All of these things, in principle, they will be possible. So, and now you're starting to delve into the culture of the scientific community and the collaborative right. nature. And because right now, you know, it's very interesting from an outsider's perspective to see scientists talk about how competitive it is, how secretive it can be. You're hiding, you know, you're you're siloing your information. You don't yep. want to present it too early. You want to yep. be the first you know, the, the, the first person on a certain idea. And exactly. it's, it's, uh, it's just All not the way that yep. you would think science should be operating. It should be as collaborative as, as humanly possible. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. And you're 100% right about that. It's, um, uh, all of that, uh, all of these sort of like weird incentives that, uh, that we currently have in science where, where people are siloing their data and, uh, where they're being secretive, uh, and non, uh, cooperative, all of that are sort of like side effects of the broken incentives and the imperfect infrastructure that we currently have. And we actually think that a lot of that can be fixed with a better infrastructure that actually allows people to get credit for doing the right thing, uh, for doing best practice, for putting everything out in the open, uh, and also to get credits for being collaborative and building on the work of others and potentially joining forces in a way that uh, everybody will ultimately get credit for it. Hmm. So let's 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 expand out now uh, from the DSI Labs to the DSI Foundation. And you actually mentioned a, a term that I want to dive into a little bit, which is meta science. Meta science. Uh, yes. And so, w what is meta science? Um, you know. What are these research centers that are looking at how science is actually being performed? Yeah. So meta science is is basically a part of science that has emerged in the last few decades, sort of like as a grassroots movement, where scientists 
across various disciplines have begun to basically turn the, the eyes of the scientific method on the scientific corpus itself. So they've been studying, they've begun to study uh, how healthy the scientific record is. Uh, so a very large part of, of meta science as it's currently being carried out is actually attempts to figure out how replicable and how robust uh, the important results in the scientific literature really are. And what we've learned from, from the first few waves of, uh, of these meta-scientific, uh, mostly replication studies, is that there is a substantial replication crisis uh, that extends across a lot of different fields. Some fields are more affected by it uh, than others, but it turns out that um, on average, about 50% or so of the results that actually get published can ultimately be independently replicated by other researchers. So it's a coin flip. And in some fields of science, um, for example, in a, in a field of science, uh, so biomedical research, for example, uh, preclinical studies that ultimately leads um, to or should lead to the discovery of, um, uh, of new drugs or new cures for diseases, this replication problem is much, much worse. So there, there have been studies basically showing that in, uh, in preclinical trials for uh, or preclinical studies for, for cancer drugs, uh, less than 10% of the uh, uh, published results in top journals actually replicate. And that's, that's a disaster, right? So that's, um, that's really one of the first things that we learned from meta science. But meta science is not only replication studies. It's just generally this idea that we can apply the scientific methods uh, to science itself to figure out what is working and what is not working and potentially also to develop solutions for that. So you can also think in the future that a part of meta science could be things like theoretical studies uh, where you do mechanism design, where you actually sit down and you say, okay, so we have identified a, a problem and how the incentives in a particular field of science are or in a particular part of uh, the scientific process. And we now sit down and we try to, to come up with a better incentive system, a better mechanism. Um, and you can do that, for example, with the tools of game theory or uh, with computer simulations. And then you could take these theoretical predictions about how this better system should perform. You could take that to the field and you could test it. And you could compare it to how the current system performs, right? So this is actually how I'm thinking about how meta science could evolve in the future. So not only looking at the replicability of, uh, of studies that have already been published, but much more broadly thinking in a very structured and scientifically rigorous ways about ways how we can actually improve the way we do science. Mm. So, I mean, just from the get-go for listeners, you, uh, you know, the, the scientific method asks for uh, your results to be 100% replicable. Uh, replicable, you know, so, and, and that it's, uh, and the, by doing that, it's a fact, you know, if you mentioned what is true and what is not true earlier. Well, and, it would be so nice if that would be, if it would be that, that simple. I mean, yes, right. uh, this is, I've, I mean, theoretically, totally right. Right. this is, this is how, this is how people are typically thinking about it. But in reality, of course, um, this, this is not how it works. So especially when, when you look at empirical research, uh, so if, 
if you do like any sort of statistical testing, uh, there there is a, a probability that the results that you're looking at are uh, that they were just the result of chance, right? Uh, and yes, you can actually reduce that probability uh, through various ways, such as increasing your sample size or using more powerful statistical methods or whatever it be. But it is almost impossible uh, to actually say that something is 100% replicable. So this is this is this is a, a target that we, we cannot even achieve uh, theoretically. So there will always be a margin of error where you know. Uh, we just have to accept that even, uh, you know, uh, very, very convincing results that have been published in top journals uh, may actually not independently replicate. The only way for us to actually figure that out is to try it. Mm. So the meta-scientific method is, yeah. uh, let's, you know, our theories are, what are these different potential systems of science that, uh, you know, from which we can pull, create new data? And that are that are minimizing the margin the margin of error in terms of the you know this replication crisis that you're talking yeah. about, yeah. and then take those ideas into the field. Let's experiment. Is this kind of experimentation happening yet in labs, or you know, are, do, are you approaching institutions and saying, "Hey, we're we want to try this out"? Like, how does this work? So we we definitely did not get to the point yet where we can actually uh, do this sort of of mechanism design in a, in a scientifically uh, like robust way. So the the DSI Foundation uh, was only started like one and a half years ago, uh, and uh, basically we're we're still in the in the process of actually uh, trying to uh, to get donations from people so that we can actually have a funding program that will help us to uh, to actually finance these research centers. Uh, the research centers, um, they will be very expensive to run. I think what we can actually do in the short run is uh, we can help scientists um, with funding programs, for example, to make their, their data publicly uh, available to basically cover their storage fees. We can also have prices that reward scientists for best practice. And these are sort of like things that we can do at the beginning uh, that are going to be scalable and not horribly expensive. Uh, but for us to actually branch into a, um, uh, into this larger idea of running these research centers and, and actually doing a lot of these different um, you know meta scientific studies on different parts of the uh, of the scientific endeavor, I think that will that will take some time. And there is there's a question mark about you know whether whether we will actually have enough money in our hands to do that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, and and the other side of it from from you know, an implementation perspective is, is I, I wonder, and I wonder if, you know, how does the DSI labs methodology, uh, plan to incorporate the institutional yeah. publication platforms like JSTOR and science direct, cause we have a yeah. body of information that already yeah. exists, but it's behind these paywalls. So is yeah. it possible to incorporate that, uh, you know, that institutional, you know, previously collected knowledge? Yeah. I mean, to, to some extent, uh, this is possible and the extent to, to which it is possible depends on the license agreements uh, under which the original content was published so if something has been published under um, you know a creative commons license or an open access license uh, that in principle allows others to uh, um, yeah to to take those results uh, or those publications and to post them uh, in a different format then yes, that's possible. There's also possibilities uh, to actually find so-called preprint 
versions of articles that ultimately ended up behind paywalls so that, that we cannot uh, actually uh, directly put into this new system. But there may be uh, uh, versions of those papers that are identical or relatively close to the final version uh, that we can actually integrate. And in principle, we can also just create a, a platform where scientists can then finally store and share the scientific artifacts that actually are part of these publications, but are currently not shared with the public, mm. for which there was currently uh, no, until now, there was no, no really good infrastructure of doing that. So we, we can actually do all of these things. Um, some of it will require the input from scientists. Some of it uh, can actually be automated. Uh, and then there is the question, of course, of how do we integrate this, this new version of the scientific record that we're trying to build with the data about the scientific record that we already have. And that data is very important for, you know, for, for actually finding the original work, uh, for counting references, for seeing who has funded what, uh, who has what type of importance. So we're in, in ongoing talks uh, with, with people in the... Uh, scientific uh, publication uh, industry to figure out how how we can actually do that. There is definitely there is ways how how the existing uh, metadata about the scientific record uh, can be integrated with the metadata that will come out of this open uh, system that we're building. The word that kind of comes to my mind about the current existing system is that it seems like a, a bit of a bubble. You know, where we <laughs> where we have a swelling uh, amount of these papers and 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 findings mm -hmm. that are are products of perverse incentives, and that mm -hmm. there seems and there seems to be a legitimacy bubble here that yeah. is is yeah. is getting pretty big and might pop. And yeah. is that do we need to change the scientific information ecosystem? in such a way to prevent its own collapse or to prevent some sort of uh, existential crisis for that ecosystem? I'm, I'm just going to give you my, my personal opinion on that. Uh, and my personal opinion is, yes, we do need really radical change. Um, you're totally right. So we what we've seen in the last couple of years or decades is actually uh, an almost exponential increase in the number of scientific publications. So there's a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, one of them is that the incentives for scientists have more and more shifted towards quantitative markers uh, of productivity. So if basically, if, you know, if the only way for a scientist to make progress in their career is to publish or perish or to have a lot of impact or perish, then it is not surprising that you know you actually create this flood of new publications, right? So what happens is that they uh, that they start you know slicing uh, you know one big result or one big data set into smaller and smaller pieces. Uh, that there is a lot of incentives to to publish things that are ultimately not worth publishing, uh, and. Yes, so you, you have this increase, it's almost exponential increase in the number of publications, but at the same time, there's also increasing empirical evidence that the actual impact that the science that we're currently doing is having on the real world is getting smaller and smaller. So in, in economic terms, uh, it means that we see increasing evidence that there is decreasing returns 
to the investments into scientific research and, to, and into research and development, broadly speaking. And that, that really is a fundamental problem for mankind because the rate at which we can actually innovate and do technological progress and have scientific progress is ultimately responsible for our ability to have economic growth. And it is also responsible or directly linked to our ability to uh, respond to new crises uh, and to find solutions uh, to problems that may actually threaten mankind. So if there is a substantial decrease to the returns to investments in, in scientific research, there's basically, um, there's only very few things that we can do about that. One is we can invest more and more money into this machine that is getting less and less effective. Uh, or we can try to find ways how we can actually increase the productivity. So basically change the production function. This is really what we're trying to do. So we're, we're thinking that by reorganizing the way that, uh, that science is being done and being evaluated and being shared with the public, that we can actually increase the productivity uh, of these investments into research and development and, and science. But there's also a, um, a much more pessimistic uh, interpretation of, uh, of these empirical results that suggests that the returns to R&D are actually decreasing over time. And that is the interpretation that maybe it is just getting harder and harder to find good ideas because the good ideas that are easy to find, they have already been found, right? So we've already harvested the low hanging fruit and to get to the higher hanging fruit, we just have to put more and more effort into it. And that is actually a very, very plausible explanation. And if that should be true, we're really in for a rough ride because it means that even if we improve the scientific system, there is no way for us to actually maintain the level of technological progress or economic growth that we currently have, at least not indefinitely. And if we want to do it, it will require um, larger and larger investments uh, into research and, and development, which basically means we need more and more funding, uh, larger parts of GDP that need to be going back into research and to science, a larger part of the population that actually needs to, to work in science. And that is ultimately, there is, there is natural uh, you know, maxima to how far we can go with that. Right? So if that is the reality that we're facing, then ultimately it means that economic uh, growth and technological progress will at some point come to a standstill. Wow. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a, and, and so let's change the, the paradigm there for a second in terms of this vision for the future. What's the grand vision of this kind of technology? What's the best case scenario for a scientific information ecosystem? And how would right. that change the way that our civilization works? Yeah, so I think the, the best case scenario is that we, we build a system that is as productive and efficient as it possibly can. Meaning that for each dollar that we put into that system, we're getting out uh, the maximum amount of actually true and useful knowledge that is possible. So doing that uh, is going to be a major, major lift. And as we, as we said earlier, it will require a major deviation from how we're currently doing science. Um, so we may be able to actually you know, increase 
these returns to investments into a, uh, into R and D and into science um, uh, by doing that. Wow. So I want there, I feel like we're just like scratching the surface here in yeah. terms of what you're doing. <laughs> and I, I genuinely hesitate to go on because I want my co-host uh, to be on here, Dr. Alexandra McCall Garfinkel. She wants to jump into the funding models that you mentioned. Right. She wants to jump into uh, a kind of a, a deeper overview. So I think this is a good place for us to stop for now. Uh, I promise. I, good. I would love to have you back on. <laughs> a final question. Who else should we be talking to? Who are other disruptors in this space that uh, the DSI Foundation, DSI Labs, Respect, want to work with? And who would you want to sit down at a table with to just talk about these issues? Yeah. So I, I think that there is a lot of people in the in the scientific community, especially in uh, you know people that that are doing meta science that have actually thought about many of these things uh, that are worth talking to. And uh, so the, we're also always in the in the process of actually trying to to scout and uh, to find these people and to bring them into our future of science podcast. So you know, one thing that you can do is just look at the people that uh, that we've already invited so they uh, they were all like they, they were fulfilling that criteria that you just mentioned okay excellent. <laughs> so they were all people that we wanted to talk to because we thought that they had something interesting to say um but of course there is there's a lot of other people uh, out there that that are not even our on on our radar yet uh so i'm i'm sure that there is a, a lot of um people in in science but also in in technology uh maybe even in in philosophy uh, and uh, and maybe even also in uh, in not so closely you know research related sectors such as let's say investment or or politics uh, where you may find people that have thought very deeply about these things and have something interesting to say about. Mm. Well, Philip, thank you so much for jumping on with me today. Uh, this is incredibly fascinating. I have like a hundred more questions and uh, I'm just going to have to cut it off here for now. Uh, I really appreciate it. Where can our listeners find you, follow you, uh, the DSI Foundation Labs, everything? Where would you send yeah. us? Yeah. So the DSI Foundation is just the dsifoundation.org and uh, we have our seminar series there. Um, we have the recordings of, of all the seminars. We have the podcast there. You can find the podcasts also on Spotify and on iTunes. DSI Labs uh, can be found at dsi.com. And uh, from there, you can find all different sorts of information about the system uh, uh, that they're building. And you can uh, also start creating research nodes yourself. And uh, yeah, and me, you can find on uh, on Twitter or um, yeah. Okay, I guess awesome. also via email. <laughs> the I will, old fashioned uh, way. The old fashioned way. That's how I got you. Uh, I. <laughs> I will link all of that in the show notes. Go check it out. Um, please check out the Future of Science podcast. I'm going to. Um, and uh, Philip, thank you so much. This is, this is an amazing conversation. Wonderful. Thanks for having me, Robert. It's a pleasure.